1: You and Betty and the Nancy's and Bills and Joe's and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
2: Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Welcome to 2021, and welcome to my now almost regular co-host, Adam Bristol.
3: Thanks, Indre. It's great to be here.
2: So Adam Isaac, our producer, let the cat out of the bag uh, last month, uh, informing our audience that Adam and I are in fact married, Uh, and finally giving Adam the introduction that he so well deserves. Um, You know... I wanted Adam to be a co-host on this podcast, not just because it's incredibly convenient uh, to be living with your co-host during a pandemic, but also because he is probably the smartest person I know, which is why I agreed to spend the rest of my life with him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, because I really like hanging out with him.
3: I'm stunningly good looking, too. (laughs) So you won't That's find true. many sh- shots on the web, but yeah. I'll take my word for it.
2: Definitely a face made for podcasting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a streaming world, yeah. Uh, so, in addition to what Adam Isaac told our listeners about you—that you know you have a degree in neuroscience, that you work in the biotech space, and that you are a very keen critical thinker about science—which make you all uh, very qualified to be a co-host on Inquiring Minds—you also have a great radio voice.
3: Thank you very much. I was on radio in college.
2: Yeah, yeah. You it was
3: uh, awesome. I did jazz and kind of indie rock. You are the
2: jazz director at a college radio station. I was. Right? That's I we was, met. Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. Um, but also, it's just been really fun to be able to talk more about some of the topics that we cover here on Inquiring Minds, because often there are still questions left to talk about and discover and answer after an interview.
3: Well, that's what I love is because you and I um, can discuss forthcoming interviews. We usually read a lot of the same books. We have similar interests. And of course, you know, even just making dinner, you know, I'll often say, hey, I listened to the final podcast episode and we just continued the discussion. I think that that really leads to a great rapport, but also it's just, as you say, a lot of these topics it's, you know, like great science usually, at, you know, presents more questions than it answers. And yeah, so you know, these true. things can, we can always revisit these uh, in, in later podcasts as well.
2: And listeners, you know, if you ever uh, uh, recognize something or or notice something that's a little bit awry, you can let us know. We can take it to our marriage therapist.
3: Mm. (laughs) You can be be our marriage therapist. Yeah, maybe.
2: Maybe. Cool. All right, so um, in this episode, in addition to uh, giving Adam his due accolades, I also wanted to look back a little bit on 2020, since it was such an odd year, and look forward into 2021 and give our audience a sense of what they might expect in this new year of Inquiring Minds, since we've we've been around for a while now.
3: I mean, you've been podcasting for almost a decade, I would think. Uh, when did you yeah. start at Point of Inquiry?
2: I think that was in 2011 or 2012 so yeah. It's very yeah beginning of the decade yeah. um, and then this podcast we we started in 2014 with Chris Mooney yeah and then Kishore Hari for a number of years uh, and it's continued on and and uh, we were just so pleased with the success you know the other day Adam and Isaac and I were going over the numbers and would you believe we have 13.5 million downloads across the catalog
3: I think that's incredible but again it speaks to the quality of the podcasts you create. And and I think having an early mover advantage, you know, I think that people things get established. And there's a virtuous cycle where you can get better interviews, you get better access to authors and other types of resources. And so I think that that's, that's terrific. I think there's, but, but yet there's still a lot left that you want to accomplish.
2: Yeah. And there's always room to innovate. So especially our longtime listeners, if there's something that you feel has gotten a little stagnant or you want to see more or less of, we are more than happy to hear your comments. Um, you can, as we say at the end of every episode, you can email us at contact at inquiring.show. And and yeah, get in touch with us and let us know what you think. So, Adam, uh, what did you think were some of the highlights of 2020?
3: Well, I went through the list. It was a great list. I really want to tell you that. I mean, there was a lot of great uh, conversations. Some really awesome authors introduced me to a lot of books that I really wasn't aware of, and several of which I then you know, bought or gifted. And so, I really want to commend you for I thought it was a it was a great 2020 lineup. I mean, the ones that really jumped out at me as I reflected back on the on the ones I, I listened to, episode three twelve, which was with uh, Robert Rosenkranz, mm, um yeah. structural racism in mm-hmm. medicine and medical education. You know, I think we are all affected by um, the social unrest in the summer and mm. um, and the police brutality against blacks. And I think that as a white person, I have always understood that racism is bad. But I think what opened my eyes this summer is that there's a lot of the way that modern life, certainly in America has been structured and, and set up and exists, what we consider normal is in fact biased towards whites. The normal kind of status quo is one that really is designed and equipped to better white people. That to me is, I think what really opened my eyes. You know, I like I said, I've sort of tried to believe myself to be some – not trying to be racist. I never wanted to be racist. But I think I was really – it opened my eyes to the extent and the history of kind of the structural forms of racism that I kind of swim in and, and walk around in every day in my life. And so I think that, that was a particularly meaningful episode for me.
2: Yeah, and, you know, in some ways that was our most controversial episode is the one that I received the most um, sort of angry messages from listeners mm. saying that they did not, in fact, like it, which, you know, I think is – you know, I respect other people's opinions in the sen- in you know, in the sense that I want to always hear what you think, but I also feel that um, as a podcast, it is my job to push people to think about things that are uncomfortable, and uh, I think that that you know that in some ways is is, is a marker of success. And I will say there there is another uh, podcast series that I really liked called 1619, uh, which was by the New York Times, which really sort of talks about the 400 years of racism and its effects and i think that that in terms of how it its impacted society or at least how the black lives matter movement and the so, the racial justice movement from this summer has impacted society, I think, is to take us out of a passive role, um, especially if you're a white person, and into an active role by the very way in which we talk about it. So to be a some someone who is, you know, not a racist is kind of passive, but to be anti-racist is an active way of thinking about it. And, you know, the conversation with Robert Rosencrantz and with others um, has actually impacted my own work this year in, in in and and the way that we parent uh to sort of be more actively anti-racist um, rather than simply patting ourselves on the back because we don't think we are racist and so we say well, well you know we're not racist so we're not part of the problem but in fact if you're not actively working towards a solution then you are still part of the problem
3: yeah no it, it reminds me a little bit of maybe 10 or 15 years ago with some of my grad student colleagues there was a discussion on feminism specifically the question when you Put are you a feminist to men, mm-hmm. and most men will initially say no. I, I'm not a feminist. They're, they don't mean that. I guess they're against it, but it's just that they're not really part of the cause. And that if you if you take a step back and think about it, it's like why shouldn't every man, if you truly believe in equality and that you know you want to uh, have everyone have all the fulfillment and achievement that they can they can um, they can achieve. So poorly stated, but why wouldn't you be a feminist too? Mm-hmm. And then in a way, and so I kind of, it was just, again, the semantics of that, it kind of struck home. And I think there's some similar elements to my awakening and appreciation during the riots this this summer went beyond just like an abhorrence at the murdering of black people. It became more of opening my eyes to sort of the broader scope and the deep, deep entrenchment of the problems. Mm-hmm. Um
2: yeah. Also, what your comments reminded me of something that you know famously Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who of course we lost this year, said, which was when she was asked like, when will you be satisfied when half the court, uh, Supreme Court, uh, you know, is filled with with female judges, and she said, no, I'll be satisfied. When it's not all nine are female and, you know, the person was really taken aback and said, well, don't why, you know, don't you believe in equality? And she said, yeah, but it's been nine male justices for, you know, many decades why was that okay if we're talking about equality and mm-hmm. nine female justices would not be okay? So I think mm-hmm. that there is, it is a way of like thinking about a perspective. It doesn't just mean 50-50. It just doesn't, doesn't just mean like moving to the line in which, uh, you know, we are equal today, but rather also thinking about ways in which we can, you know, honor people and, and uh, repair some of the damage that was done in the past.
3: Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I, I guess with Rosencrans the, 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 podcast you know i think we we have data to show disparities in health outcomes mm-hmm. we have data to show too about an underrepresentation of certain groups in sciences and in medicine those are those are data you know those aren't opinions those are data and so to, to to wonder whether there are structural elements that contribute to that imbalance seems to me the questions we should be asking.
2: Yeah. And of course, this pandemic only highlights the disparities in health outcomes as, you know, Hispanic and black people have been particularly disproportionately affected by COVID-19. There was a, a viral video of a black doctor who was highlighting how she was being mistreated during her battle with COVID-19, which she ultimately lost. Um, and so I, I think that there, you know, there, the, the conversation needs to continue. And so hopefully in 2021, we will talk about it a little bit more.
3: I think, you know, somewhat along the same vein of trying to get a better sense of history, the two additional podcasts that I really liked of yours were episode 298 with Deborah Blum, on mm. the poison squad.
2: Oh yeah, she's she's and always And she's interview. a great
3: interview, but the topic again was this very enlightening discussion of some of the very things that we almost don't like today, right? The kind of the back to nature, artisanal, mm-hmm. nature is better. Is very much what some of the technological improvements of the early twentieth century were, in fact, fighting against. Right. So, if you think of the regulation of uh, uh, food additives and 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 actually the the sort of the bland homogene- homogenization of things like Wonder Bread, those came as a response, as her you know, as her uh, 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 investigative work tells us, because they came out of a period where you just didn't know what was in your food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And things were pretty scary because they yeah. could just basically fool you by putting things that were just completely substitutions. And of course, then the pendulum swung to these you know, th- things that are what we would consider to be unhealthy processed food. But you can understand it in a historical context as being a natural product of an environment where things were highly unregulated and therefore could be almost toxic to you.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it is really interesting to to sort of hear that history and and think about how, like, you know, drinking a glass of milk, which is in some ways today, like possibly the most... Wholesome, like healthiest, you know, image that you could have. Somebody like drinking yeah. a cold glass of milk. Exactly, milk, milk mustache. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, know, exactly. That, like, that that was actually something that you were taking your life in your own hands when you yeah. were having that yeah. that glass of wholesome milk. Um, so yeah, she she's uh, she she's really wonderful. One of our other previous guests that uh, I hope to get back on twenty twenty one, who's another really great science writer, is Maria Konakova. Um, and she's she's come up with a couple other books since the last time we chatted, and so we'll be we'll be booking her onto the podcast because um, she's uh, she's a super interesting interview too.
3: And in terms of history as a source of enlightenment, you know Bart Ehrman,
2: mm, yeah, you know,
3: is in in his kind of history of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. You know, is was it's just fascinating in that how the the you know the the idea or the concept of heaven and hell changed over time,
2: yeah. right?
3: And so uh, that, again, to me, is is just really, it's just how do we get till now? How do we get to now? And that, that's pretty interesting, because things always weren't the way we believe them to be, or these systems weren't always the way that we thought them to be. They have a antecedent system, had a progression to get them where they are today.
2: Yeah. And really interestingly, um, so Pixar put out this new movie called Soul, uh, which essentially asks this question of what happens to us, you know, before and after our physical existence. Uh, and I, yeah, I think I, I, you know, I won't give you any spoilers about it, but, you know, we both enjoyed that film and thought it was an interesting kind of take on what matters. And it's interesting to see an animation company tackle this yeah. topic. I mean, yeah. just, just the boldness of them going out yeah. and like creating a film about this you know potentially really polarizing topic amongst family viewers right
3: yeah i mean uh, with regard to heaven and hell if you haven't seen the film it kind of skirts around that
2: it's more like quantum physics in the sense that, like some of this it's almost like
3: almost some eastern religion ideas come into it mm, in terms of you know the Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily reincarnation but some of the of the the unborn yeah. But again, we can, we can have this uh, discussion later when... <laughs> and it's not based
2: in science, I will say. say no, that straight no. away. But it's an interesting th- it's thing great. to think about, uh, an interesting way of thinking about the meaning of life and, and why it is that we do the things we do. BP
0: added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast.
3: I really enjoyed episode 296 with Ramesh Srinivasan on what was basically discussion around his book Beyond the Valley. But the idea was how do we rethink the internet to be as advantageous and useful for everyone? Mm-hmm. You know the, the and and I guess the, the the tenor of the discussion reminded me of some of the high minded ideals that that um, that animated the very early days of Silicon Valley, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And this idea of the, the democratization, the sort of unleashing of, of, of ideas and potential, and there was going to be a, really a, kind of a flat earth of, of users, of, of giving voice to anybody in and, and this connected world. I mean, it's a very kind of, you know, like, I guess, um, kind of a Kevin Kelly type of, you know, Silicon Valley ethos. That the spirit of it, to me, I don't know if Ramesh would, would say it in the same way, but that's kind of what really w- was memorable for me about that.
2: You know, um, it it was interesting, I was thinking today about how the pandemic has forced us into a digital present, which I think we didn't quite, a lot of us did not quite realize was already here. I don't want to call it a digital future anymore, in the sense that we can essentially live the majority of our lives online, uh, or through the internet. And I think some of Ramesh's ideas are really important and really interesting as we think about what the consequences are, because certainly life is not going to be the same after the pandemic. And, you know, we are, we are, yeah, barreling into this digital future, um, this digital present in ways in which I think we, we have to take the time and really think about what the consequences are here. And I think that, you know, by, in a way, jumping into the pool of remote learning, for example, has really, I think, made us mindful of the things that do work and the things that don't work uh, with online learning, how we can make them better, but also the inequalities that exist, um, you know, in, in many different parts of our society. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that it, it's a, it's an interesting topic to to return to, especially as the vaccines roll out. You know, if you were a conspiracy theorist, which I certainly am not, and I will say right out, uh, you know, front that of course COVID nineteen is not a hoax, but you can imagine that if you were designing a, a, a hoax or a conspiracy theory to get people to enrich Jeff Bezos and, you know, make these tech companies even more powerful, forcing people to stay at home is the way to do it, right? And so it's interesting to sort of think about the consequences of the pandemic in terms of our digital future. One of the reasons that I've been so interested in how digital technology affects us is because I wrote a series of lectures for The Great Courses on that topic, which came out in the fall. And so I had to write 24 lectures. And so I really had to think deeply about, you know, the different ways in which this affects us. Now, I feel like I could completely rewrite um, a lot of that material after the pandemic. Although, I, 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 you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, I think the majority of it is still very much applicable. But that's something in 2021 that I'm interested in exploring more is what what have we learned from the pandemic in terms of how digital technology shapes us? How has it changed our attitude and behavior with respect to digital technology? And I don't think it's as in all the ways that we think are so obvious. Um, I think there's a lot of nuances there that, that will be worth exploring. But that brings me to where else we're going to go in 2021 in terms of content on Inquiring Minds. And um, I'm writing another lecture series for The Great Courses this year um, called The Creating Brain, which is about creativity and the brain. And so you can look forward to uh, conversations somewhat like uh, the ones that I've had on, on creativity, um, like with David Epstein, who wrote The Sports Gene and who, um, who, who wrote also another book about Range. how... Range. That's right. Yeah. About how generalists matter. I
3: think it was either on Obama's or Gates' books of the of the, of the, the reading list. Oh, the yeah. reading
2: list. Yeah, yeah, that's another. It's another great book. And many other people who are going to talk about hopefully Scott Barry Kaufman. Um, mm, sure. You know, talking about creativity, uh, especially as it comes down to sometimes when the pandemic forces us to just be alone in a single room, like can we still be creative and how can we be creative? That's something that's that I've been interested in um, looking to the future. But also, you know, this pandemic is an immediate risk, an immediate threat to crisis, uh, to our existence. But there is another immediate looming crisis (laughs) that we have been ignoring for far too long, and that is the climate crisis. And that's also something I really want to turn to in 2021 to cover um, more more deeply and more in depth. And especially sort of this, this conversation about what can we do as individuals, And what is most effective? And you've thought about this certainly more than I have. And I think more than a lot of people have. And so we're going to kick off 2021 with an interview that you did with uh, Jay Bhagwan. Tell us what to expect.
3: Yeah, Jay is is a civic engineer based in South Africa. And he's worked for many years uh, with uh, sanitation projects, and you might think that what's uh, that's not very sexy, but I can tell you it's absolutely critical, not just in the developing world, but in the de- developed world too. If you think of of good resource resource conservation and management, uh, some of our sanitation systems are highly uh, ineffective not ineffective, but they're inefficient. Uh, there's an, there's an underutilization of gray water uh, and uh, if we expect our cities to grow and our populations to grow, you know, effective um, wastewater management is critical for that really around the world. And Jay's been working in this space for a long time. I, I sought him out um, to have this discussion to help orient us. So what, what, what have we accomplished really in his career, but also what do we have to look forward to? So that, that's a discussion that should be, coming for, that should be forthcoming.
2: And as we spent more time at home, we also found ways to make our own lives a little bit more sustainable. So you are now capturing our rainwater.
3: Yep. Two rain barrels. I realized, my gosh, it's even a fairly modest amount of rainfall when you calculate that volume across the entire you know, uh, space of your roof and then capture it you can easily get 50 to 100 gallons of water um, that is perfect use for different landscaping, flowers, gardening, things like that. And so that's been a really fun project to work on.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've actually avoided planting any plants that require a lot of watering in our little tiny garden because we just were really didn't want to waste the water. California,
3: in sure. In California. Yeah.
2: And yet now, like, we have to get rid of the water from the rain barrel because there's so it's much. Just it's just overflowing. It's kind of shocking.
3: Yeah, it's overflowing yeah. My, my, my overflow valve. Um. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, of course, there's periods of abundance and there's, a period yeah, there's of, periods of, of scarcity. And so we're in water. the rainy season now. And you're right. I mean, I basically can't. I can't capture enough of it. Um, but that will change. And but with the with the drip lines we put in, you know, those will those will. I think they'll make that water last a long time. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. And I but have, that
2: just seemed like a really simple, cheap solution. Unbelievably cheap. Yeah. Unbelievably
3: simple. And Our even if you
2: have, even if you're living in an apartment, I mean, you have a roof somewhere, hopefully, mm-hmm. in which case you have, you know, you maybe capture water from that roof. Doesn't have to be a single-family home.
3: Yeah, I mean, the typical way you do it is you tap into the downspout, and mm-hmm. so depending on where you live, you know, you, do you have access to the downspout in a in a position that. Still makes the water retain water water reservoir and the rain barrel like accessible Mm -hmm. and usable, Mm -hmm. you know. And so for us, that's really easy. But for other folks, you know, is that is that even is that feasible?
2: Um, And and we found that um, putting solar panels on the house was something that it was economically feasible for us. And so in that sense, you know, we 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 are able to to get rid of our. Electricity footprint, presumably, although obviously there's a lot of environmental waste that happens in terms of creating solar panels, and you know it's probably not a, it's certainly probably not a neutral uh, choice. But hopefully, over the course of many years, we can sort of then justify. But one thing that you and I have talked about was, you know, whether these steps that we feel okay. So now we're not taking any electricity off the grid. We're you know not pulling too much water out of you know the the, the, the water treatment plants in, in, in San Francisco, et cetera. But like, does it matter?
3: It's a great question and I don't have the answers. My sense is that in some cases it obviously matters more than others. I think when it comes to solar panels, I agree with you that the manufacturing, while the economies of scales and, and, and the, the, the technology is getting better and getting cheaper, that is all good but we have to move the society to an electrification and solar panels. And I feel that our putting solar panels on the house is part of that nice social contagion that will contribute to that, that movement over time. And, you know, water barrel, rain barrel stuff, like, it's minimal, you know, it's probably minimal in terms of the, I don't, I don't even, I could probably figure it out, but how much water we actually use in the house for other purposes Mm -hmm. is probably a small percentage, but I think that makes me feel good. It's not difficult to do. So it's not putting me out and, you know, but if, but again, a lot of these things, if you were to scale them up could make a really big difference in sort of water Mm -hmm. usage and, you know, tapping in our reservoirs like Hetch Hetchy. But when it comes to things like, you know, I'm I'm a dedicated recycler, as you know that, mm-hmm. and I think I even I know that in my heart of hearts is um,
2: it's kind of really theater. not.
3: It, it's a bit theater. Yeah, I think when it comes to metals and glass, those really make a lot of sense. Lots of plastics is basically theater, and now and by I that think,
2: we mean that it, they're not actually being recycled; they're being yeah.
3: Provided yeah even if you put them in the blue yeah. bin and the and truck comes and the and takes downcycling it away can and... only happen so many times and it's really it can be quite resource intensive to even do it the things that i've been thinking a lot about are e-wastes you know the sort of mm-hmm. the system of e-waste removal in this country which has basically been to my understanding like shipping it out to third world countries for stripping and and sort of you know f- finding the the, the the small slivers of, of valuable components it's kind of not Really going to be working in in the future, and so I don't know what to do because electronics and gadgets are central to so much of kind of first world living that I don't know how that's gonna I don't know how that's gonna play out over time.
2: Well, it's something that hopefully we can cover in twenty twenty one. Some strategies to reduce waste and uh, help us keep our environment clean and our climate crisis from being overwhelming, if we can or you know, I don't know, slowing it down in some way. Um, and then also the social justice side of like trying to talk about and think about how we can help people who are going to be disproportionately impacted by climate change, just like the pandemic disproportionately impacts certain um, elements of our society.
3: And we might cover more of the um, plastic eating uh, bacterial enzymes. <laughs> That's or right. Or bacteria.
2: Yep. So we'll have a combination of up-to-date episodes where Adam and I cover the latest in science news. Uh, We will have in-depth interviews with thought leaders, scientists, and other experts that can talk to us about uh, science and society. And if you have any pressing topics and interests that you want us to cover, uh, please reach out to us and let us know. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And I'd like to just take this moment to really thank our Patreon supporters, without whom this podcast would not continue, I can tell you, that much as podcasts and various other media lost so much of their ad income during the pandemic, at least in the early days, you know, the the Patreons uh, kept us afloat. So thank you for that. And um, I want to especially thank those patrons who've been around with us for a very long time, um, like David Noel, who I always start thanking and who's just been a, a really you know phenomenal supporter. Thank you, David. Charles Blyle, Kyle Royhalla, Dale LeMaster, um, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Joelle, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Herring Chang, Jordan Millar have continued to stick with us. Um, and I wanted to mention a few others uh, that have uh, joined us more recently. Doug Petipier, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and Scott Heflin, um, Justin Yost-Lei gomez jeremy johnson um thank you so much for supporting us this year in particular we had a number of new patrons come and join us in 2020 i know it's been a hard year for financially for most of us if not all of us so i thank you for helping us continue to make this podcast a possibility um, as as I'm, I'm sure things are tight Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I have been so thrilled to work for Adam and with Adam now um, for almost a decade. He's been a really great partner, and I hope that you listeners know how much work Adam Isaac does to make this podcast awesome. So thank you, Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis.
3: And I'm Adam Bristol.
2: See you next week, and here's to 2021.